KP, KPC, News, Information, Culture, KPCC, California Sensibility. Hi, I'm Rebecca Lair. And I am Amy Choi, and we are the Mashup Americans. <clears throat> so, we could have a woman president. Ah, this is such a big deal. Yeah, have full goosies, like mashup lady goosies. Goosies. Goosies, me too. And I just, we never actually imagined that this could happen. And now suddenly the impossible seems possible. I mean, did you ever dream about being president of the United States? Well, uh, in fourth grade, I did dress up as Abe Lincoln, and it was very convincing. Um, (laughs) Of course you did. Yeah, my dad made me a hat. And I did student government for basically all of my education. But I think I'm only realizing now that I never completely believed I could be president until I saw Hillary up there this past week. What about you? Um, well, I was the first person in my family to be born in America. So I, I did hear all the time that I could be the first person in my family who could be president of the United States. Well, there is still time, Amy. There is still time. 2024, Amy Choi for president. Go, Amy, Amy. <laughs> I don't even like chanting, and I'll chant the whole time. <laughs> si se puede, si se puede. Okay, thank you. So, but really, actually, being able to witness this historic moment for women and seeing so many amazing mashup ladies breaking new ground in all their different fields has been extremely profound and inspiring for us. So there's Tia Sonia, Sonia Sotomayor, Tia, just Tia, Alicia Garza, Shonda Rhimes, Indra Nui, and of course, Michelle Obama and everyone on her team. I know they're all just amazing women who are able to bring like their whole mashy womanly selves to their work. And I mean, it's it's inspiring for us. So today we are so excited to talk to Tina Chen, first generation Chinese American mashup, who is the chief of staff to Michelle Obama, and also the executive director and founder of the White House Council on Women and Girls. In case you haven't heard of the amazing work that they do, the council advises President Obama, yes, you know him, on the welfare of women and girls. It launched in 2009 and is the first council of its kind. We have so many questions for her. So many. I mean, we get to talk about what it was like as a Chinese American woman to adopt a a daughter from China, um, her incredible, heroic immigrant mom, and how growing up as a mashup in the 50s and 60s built the resilience that makes Tina the badass that she is today. It sounds like being the only Chinese family in Ohio in the 50s was not easy. Not easy. (laughs) All right, let's get into it. Here's Tina. Tina, how do you mash up? With enthusiasm. (laughs) So where do you feel most at home? Uh, In front of the television. What shows? Scandal. You know, we're, we're, uh, we do a lot a lot of Shondaland, right? Oh, Shondi. Scandal, How to Get Away with Murder. Um, you know, I, of course, have done Game of Thrones. I've done, you know, um, House of Cards, done all of those. I'm sensing a theme. Is this all political? No, no. Done like Marvel. <laughs> done Marvel. Done those. I was like, is Tina going to aim for the throne soon? Yeah, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> Your parents came from Shanghai to the States, is yep. that right? So my parents both came in 1949, right right at the end of the war and during the revolution. They came as students originally, and my mother left her parents and three of her six siblings behind in China, and my father left his two sisters and his parents behind. He had a brother here in the United States ahead of him. So for most of my 
childhood, um, the parts of our family that were in China, you know, we had some correspondence with them, but we were not able to see them very often. So right. my mother's mother uh, never was able to come to the States. Her father was in when he was in his very late years in the 80s um, and lived in California where he passed away at the age of 104. Way um, to go. Yeah. 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 Good was, job. Well, we just read that Chinese Americans are the healthiest Americans. And we're hoping that it's something to do with the food because that would influence our food choices. Well, there you go. <laughs> that could be. That could be. What dating advice did you get from your immigrant parents? Speaking oh. of them. Well, that was kind of hard. So... They could not give me the dating advice, advice that I think they wanted to give, which was date a Chinese boy. Because when I grew up outside of Cleveland, you know, in the suburbs of Cleveland, we were one of maybe only about a half a dozen or so Chinese families on the east side of Cleveland at that time. I grew up in a Jewish neighborhood. Tina, we are soul sisters, by the way. <laughs> As another Asian American first generation, my parents came over here. I was like, I guess I'm the only Asian person on, in the world. <laughs> right. And then we're suburbs of Chicago in a Jewish neighborhood. Yep. Yes. Yep. That was what was kind of going on on the, on the dating side. So they couldn't tell you to date a Chinese boy. Uh, they couldn't. So did they tell you anything? <laughs> you know, not a whole lot beyond that, now that I think about it. I haven't thought. This is like a really long time ago, guys. So I haven't thought about it in a while. <laughs> <laughs> well, so maybe this is more pertinent. What dating advice do you give to your kids? Oh, that's hard. Now, this, now we're going to embarrass my children. Well, one of the things I do tell them is to be their own person, right? So whatever they do with the person that they're with, and everybody in their teen years goes through, you know, trying to be someone that people will like. And, you know, I've tried to stress to both my kids, you know, to be your own person and to keep doing that even when it's sometimes painful, like if somebody breaks up with you because you're not the person that they want you to be. But if you're still your own person, that's what's most important. Well, so we know that you have an older son and a younger daughter. Can you tell us just about them? So my son Patrick is 27, um, and he is my biological son from when I was married to his dad. He is another mashup American because he's uh, Chinese, Irish, German, American. Nice um, combo. So he's, so he's pretty cute. Yeah. <laughs> he's got, he's, mm. you know, wait, hold on. Googling him. Googling. <laughs> Yes, he is uh, Rebecca, very cute. Rebecca, don't be weird. He's very don't cute. get weird. <laughs> Not going to be a creep, but he's very cute. <laughs> and you know, he went to UCLA, so you all are like that out in Los Angeles. Yes. The UCLA grad was an English major, uh, was a spoken word poet. That was his passion. Oh, uh, wow. Then came back to Chicago and was a Montessori elementary school teacher for a few years. And right now is in officer candidate school um, for the United States Marine Corps, and I'm very proud of him. Wow. A poet, a Marine. The Marines and the Montessori thing. Yeah. That feels like a good mashup in and of itself. That's true. That's true. That's a really good point. And then my daughter, Emma, who's 19, um, I adopted from China as a single parent. So after I got divorced from Patrick's dad um, as a single mom, um, I adopted Emma when Patrick was um, eight years old. So they're eight years apart. Um, and she comes from southern China. So we talk a lot about parenting and what modern mashup families look like, which includes mixed marriages and raising kids who are mixed and adoption. So you've done all of that, which is awesome. And so what was it like adopting a Chinese daughter as a Chinese-American woman? So, you know, I, I sometimes when I tell the story, I, I came across doing this as an idea 
back before there were a lot of Chinese adoptions. I had never heard of it. I read this article sitting at my kitchen table in Chicago as a single parent, a couple who had done it in Chicago, and I'd never heard of that whole phenomenon, right, of folks adopting little girls from China. And I sometimes um, tell people, you know, I'm not entirely sure it would have had the same reaction if the article had been about Salvadoran baby boys, but Mm -hmm. since it was Chinese baby girls, you know, there was a Mm -hmm. real sense of there but for the grace of God go I, had my parents not left China, you know, I could have been either that little girl or that little girl's mother, you know, struggling to to sort of, you know, figure out what to do with this baby. Um, And, you know, it was, I I was at a time in my life where I loved being a parent. Um, Patrick was the only child of divorced parents. And um, I thought it'd be really good for him to have a younger sibling. And it just worked out. It took about two years because it was a a long process. In the middle of the process, China actually shut the um, adoption program down to reorganize it. So Mm. for about a year, it didn't even look like it would happen. And then it came back online and very quickly um, it it all came together in the, uh, this was August, September of 1997. And then I went over to pick up Emma, who was 10 months old at the time when I got her. Did adopting Emma change your relationship to your Chinese-ness or how you identified as a Chinese-American woman? You know, not, I don't know that it did necessarily. Um, You know, one of the things my parents did, even though, you know, we grew up, as I said earlier, you know, in this um, Jewish neighborhood in in Cleveland without a lot of Chinese um, families nearby us, my parents did something to keep us connected to our heritage. And they started with some friends of theirs who were also, you know, um, Chinese students who had come over in the, you know, 40s and 50s. They started a Chinese family camp. Um, with uh, that we used to go to in Indiana. So it was families from all across the Midwest who for a week every summer would go to Lake Wawasee in Indiana and with our parents. Love so it. it was a family camp. So it was aunties and <laughs> uncles, and we all called each other auntie, uncles, and cousins and grandparents. And, you know, we would do Chinese culture. We'd do some Chinese language. We'd do arts and crafts. We'd do water sports and volleyball and tennis and... Many of those families are still, you know, some of my closest family friends. The camp is still going strong after almost 60 years. Wow. And I took my kids to it. And so that gave me, I think, throughout my entire life, a pretty strong sense of my Chinese identity. So I don't know that adopting Emma changed it in any sort of unusual, you know, unique way. How does she identify? Well, she had, she both kids, you know, identify very strongly as Chinese, um, but none of us speak Chinese. Um, I, I took it, you know, very seriously as a, lang- you know, as a language course in, in college and got pretty good at speaking Chinese when I was, you know, 22 years old and then have forgotten it since. Um, so none of the three oh, of us. Oh, haven't we all? We right, have exactly. a whole section of our website about guilt, so no, don't I, even worry about <laughs> there, it. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so, so we don't identify it that way, but they... You know, they are both identified very strongly as coming from a Chinese family, as being Chinese themselves. Um, Patrick, interestingly, he looks probably actually more Hispanic than he does Chinese just because of the way the mix, the mashup happened for him. Um, mm-hmm. But he personally identifies very much as Asian and just connects to the Asian American community really strongly. Oh, and speaking of the next generation of Americans, we have an awesome episode lined up for the next podcast on Becoming American. 
What does being American mean to you? When did you first really feel American? Also, uh, we take a citizenship test on the air. And I am pre-embarrassed about that. (laughs) Already humiliated for sure. You won't want to miss it. Back to the show. Some think that we can't flow. flow. Stereotypes, they got to go. go. I'm going to mess around and flip the scene into reverse. With what? With a little touch of late first. We were just talking about how Amy's daughter, who's six months old, (laughs) half of her face looks like her Hispanic dad and half of her face looks like her Korean mom. It's really, there's something crazy. Like, you could put a mirror in the middle, you know, like one of those funhouse wow. mirrors and make up some, something else. But that's, it's <laughs> interesting, too, that idea that, like, if you, even if you look one way, you can identify so strongly in another. Yeah. You know, my kids look, they're um, half Latino and half Asian. They look very Asian. Oh, interesting. And it's something funny that when like other especially other Korean people see them they like want to stand up and clap they're like oh they're Korean like, we, we as, won as were, <laughs> we won well what I love and it happens a lot to the two of them is that when we're all together as a family people will say to Patrick and Emma oh you two look so much alike yeah we get that a lot too <laughs> So what was it like growing up? You know, it sounds like you had such a great tie to the Chinese-American community and people that had had similar experiences to your family. But I think, you know, one thing that can be so challenging for mashups when they're in a place that's not densely urban or that isn't super diverse, that, um, you know, the experience that your family had where they were coming out of war and that the families had been split up both on your mother's and mother and father's side, you know, that... It has a kind of a profound effect on you when you're growing up and nobody has a story like yours. Yeah, that's very true. And you remember, I was growing up in the 50s and 60s. And it was not only very unusual to have a Chinese family living, you know, where I was living. Um, it was very unusual to have Im- an immigrant family at all. Um, you know, really, t- you know, mm-hmm. I- I- immigration wasn't really talked about a lot. It wasn't really known about. There was a huge, you know, pressure to assimilate, I think, that um, in, in the 50s and 60s. It's one of the reasons why my parents did not try to teach me Chinese at home. Um, they wanted me to be able to speak English. Because that was that was very much the, the pressure of the day. I had you know vivid recollections you know as a kid, and I just just sort of grew up with it. You know, being you know stared at in the grocery store and fingers pointing at you as you went shopping in the grocery store. You know, something my kids who because we grow you know we live on the north side of Chicago you know don't experience at all. Right? You know, there's a completely diverse community. You know, the fact that you know we're, we, they've got a, a single mom and it doesn't make any difference um, because there's so many families that are so diverse. Uh, right. You know, so so it was a very different time and a, a very different way of dealing with being different. My parents, there were a lot of things which I think a lot of immigrant kids experience that you go through around. You know, even if it's stuff like prom, right, or yes, gradu- high school graduation, it was all very foreign to them, right? You know, this is not mm-hmm. the, the the cultural um, life here. It was not something that they had experienced as teenagers um, or college students. That piece of navigating it without your parents being able to guide you through, you know, some of just what happens in life, um, in social, your social life, for example, as a, as a teenager, was difficult because there were a lot of things, you know, I just didn't bother to ask my parents about because I knew that's not something they had gone through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we were just having this conversation yesterday about how a colleague of ours, he was saying that, you know, when he was growing up, he, he knew that baseball was a thing and he so wanted to participate. He bought a baseball glove, but he didn't know what to do with it and his dad didn't know how to teach him. <laughs> 
And it was kind of this like essentially American thing. And like growing up, like we would have these pancake breakfasts at school. And my parents like didn't know that they should come with me. <laughs> so I would right. go with like my, my friend's parents. And that's so challenging. But it also I think that it kind of builds in when you're so young uh, resilience. Oh, absolutely. How, how do you think that, that that experience helped prepare you for the future that you have, this incredible career that you have now? Well, no, you are absolutely right that it does build resilience. And, you know, it does, you know, I was a litigator at a big law firm where it was unusual to have senior women who were litigators. And it was even more unusual to have an Asian woman, you know, who being uh, being a litigator. Um, I used to have experiences, I remember, in court where court reporters, even sometimes jurors, would say, oh, you know, you speak English so well. It's like, uh, uh, yeah, uh. okay, only language I speak. <laughs> um, You're like, I hope so. Right, right. <laughs> but, you know, having grown up with that my entire life, it's not something, you know, that I dwelled on. It's not something that became part of, you know, or bothered me, you know, in any way or undermined my own self-confidence. And I think that has a lot to do with just dealing with it my whole life. So it, it, it's just something that just rolls off your back and it's, you're, not, you're not even really thinking about it. When's the first time you saw yourself as an Asian American or as a woman or both reflected in media? I don't really know because, you know, remember, I'm like a lot older than you guys. So, (laughs) you know, what was on television when I was growing up? There was not a lot of diversity of any kind back when I was growing up. I mean, I remember I Spy being a fan, my parents being a fan of I Spy back in the the Bill Cosby, Robert Culp days because it was so unusual, right, to have Mm. a diverse cast on your black and white television. You know, I really don't remember because there just was so little of it and and you know mm-hmm. so so few which is what's so exciting about what's happening right now i was i was at the congressional asian pacific islander institute dinner that the president spoke at in may of this year and aziz ansari was there and you know so master of none is so exciting to see a show like that on or you know we you know the fresh off the boat show is so exciting and hawaii mm-hmm. 50 is so exciting you know to have you know really strong um, Asian characters, whether it's just the show about them or even, you know, where Chloe Bennett and um, Ming-Na are on um, the Marvel, you know, on, you know, the mm-hmm. agents, right. you know, it's, it just blended right into the cast is, is amazing. childhood heroes or who are your real mentors it was my parents I know that's what everybody says but as I think back on it you know I had some teachers who were very influential and I was close to but you know watching my parents you know um and what they were going through my mother was um had rheumatoid arthritis and so from the time I was in elementary school she was she was quite ill and was her entire adult life struggled with that disease and and you know was was very ill and when I was a teenager and in college and you know it she was amazing you know even though she was in a body cast all summer one year you know she's still the person who's trying to make you know make sure that there's someone who's a you know around to make dinner for my sister and me and and you know who are um, making 
sure that we have what we need for, for, for school and college. As I reflect back on it, I actually don't know how she even was able to do all that. My dad, at the same, at the, in the meantime, was a physician, but he you know, worked multiple jobs being both you know, a full-time on-staff psychiatrist you know, at a um, hospital and then having his own private practice at night. So two or three days a week, he didn't come home um, till 9 or 10 o'clock at night. So my mom, who was not well, was taking care of these, you know, two Americanized, you know, young girls, you know, running around. And, you know, it's, it, wow. it's pretty amazing, you know, what what they both were able to do and accomplish in a, in a country that was not their own, you know, not speaking their first language. Um and without the support of any immediate family. Gosh, immigrants and women are just the best. They're just, <laughs> I, it sounds so, so trite to say something like that, but it's especially in the kind of sort of scary identity politics that are happening in this country right now. It just feels so important to acknowledge the strength of someone like your mom. So we actually want to talk a bit about the kind of incredible work you've been doing advocating for women and girls in your career and also the United State of Women conference that you've organized, um, which is the first ever summit of its kind. We are the United State of Women. The United State of Women. The United State of Women. And when we do better, everyone does better. You with us? Um, so what was the genesis of this conference? So the genesis has really been the work that we've been doing in the administration for the last seven and a half years through the White House Council of Women and Girls, which I'm the executive director of, and yes. Valerie Jarrett. And the creator of. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I did that together with Valerie Jarrett. And, Pretty you know, cool team, just saying. <laughs> So <laughs> that's right. That's I right. like to think about you and Val and Michelle just like hanging out in Chicago, like concocting <laughs> plans of how you're going to rule the world. And now here we are. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and, you know, so working on women's issues has been a personal passion of mine my entire adult life. And I've been very committed to it. And, and having the opportunity to work on those issues from a place like the White House at a national and international scale that we've been able to do for the last seven and a half years is not something I ever imagined doing. And it's been a, just a great honor and privilege. And, you know, what we did through the council and, you know, the, the, the design behind it was to have a council that included all of the federal agencies and all of the major White House offices so that rather than just have one office work on women's policy, that every part of the federal government would do that. And the president's message to the cabinet when he created the Council of Women and Girls back in March of 2009 was, you all will deal with the issues concerning women and girls no matter what you do, whether you're Department of Transportation, whether you're Health and Human Services, whether you're the Department of Defense, and you all need to have responsibility in everything you do for taking into account the needs of women and girls. Oh, preach. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, but the greatest thing of it is they all did. And in the last seven and a half years, yeah. we've assembled an amazing body of work that everyone in the federal government has worked on, and not just the government, but activists and organizations and academics and business leaders, both big business and small business, have stepped up and done it. And the United States Women's Summit is an opportunity to bring all of those folks together 
um, both folks who are working on what happens here in the United States and the folks who are working on things around the world like global women's health and let girls learn and educating adolescent girls around the world and bring them all together because all of these issues are connected. You know, women don't lead their lives in silos and we want to bring everyone together to both celebrate achievements and, you know, also look at the challenges that we have and chart some solutions for the way forward. Mm -hmm. Well, why is this work more important than ever? I mean, we're making incredible strides. We're in this historic moment for women with Hillary. And yet we also have so much more to do. And if anything, the current news cycles show us that. What are your top priorities for change? Well, you know, there's a lot. You know, we've done a tremendous amount on um, economic opportunity for women. But we still know, for example, that, you know, women are still only making 79 cents for every dollar that a man makes. And that's 50 years after the Equal Pay Act was was passed and, you know, seven years since the president signed the Better Fair Pay Act. So we've clearly still got more to do on that. My um, chest constricts so much when you talk about it. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. I'm just like so much anger. <laughs> no. And, and then, you know, and some of it has to do with our being able to make sure women can stay in the workforce. So even though women are now 50 percent of the labor force, you know, a lot of the reasons why they aren't able to move up the ranks and earn more and provide for their families is, you know, they're constricted by things like a lack of workplace flexibility, a lack of paid leave. You know, mm-hmm. we are the only industrialized country in the world that does not have a national paid leave, family leave policy. The only one. And, you know, the president often says, why is it so critical right now? You know, for so many reasons for the country's global economic competitiveness, let alone the well-being of individual families, um, we need to, you know, reduce these barriers um, that keep women and our entire talent pool that we have in the country from fully participating in our uh, economy. Two things in it. One is just to say really clearly to you and to all the women you're working with who are complete badasses that we feel extremely lucky. Like, I I feel so moved right now to see you there and to see your face on the screen, to hear your voice and to hear your story and to have seen you you all, especially in these last eight years. It is inspiring for us and for our children. And I'll probably start crying. So thank you. I just want to be really clear. Um, You know, we talk a lot about bringing your whole self to everything you do, how our mashiness informs how we see the world. We want to know about how how do you bring the perspective of navigating multiple cultures and of being a woman? How does that impact your work and where you've gone to today? Completely directly. I mean, there there are many times, and my staff will attest to it, when we'll be sitting around the table talking about, so how do we get more kids to go to college? And I'll say, well, let me tell you what Emma's going through right now. <laughs> and we have to sort of fix this particular problem with this question on the FAFSA form because we couldn't answer it at home last night. You know, from the experience that I've been through myself about what it means means to be a single working mom and how we have to address these issues. Um, And some of it is both knowing specific questions and issues because you're living them and you can bring those to the table. Some of it is, you know, more indirect, meaning you have a different perspective and it is better for a company and better, and there's lots of research that shows the better decision-making occurs when you have a diversity of viewpoints. You know, you have somebody who's a single mom, you have somebody, you know, who's a a single uh, man, you have someone, you know, who's an older woman, you know, you've got someone who's a millennial. You know, all of those things combined is what's going to lead to a better outcome. We could not agree more. Um, We like to ask 
all of the incredible people that that we get to meet through the podcast and through the work that we're doing, you know, what advice would you give to a young woman starting out who may be facing obstacles that she's not sure how to get around? There's a lot in that question. <laughs> so I do think that we started out on this conversation being true to yourself um, is important, even when it may feel hard, that I would say in the long view of your life that, you know, every time I've done something because it's felt right for me, as opposed to doing the thing that felt right for somebody else, in the long run, that pays off, even if in the short run, it makes for, you know, a difficult circumstance, you know, when I'm not doing the thing that somebody wants me to do. Um, I'd also say people should ask for help. You know, there are just lots of folks out there. And, you know, the great thing about the technology world we're in is oftentimes help is, you know, just a click or two away and people should reach out. And then I would say that, you know, I have found, you know, part of the reason I'm so active is I care a lot about these issues. But the other reason I'm so active is it's a lot of fun. You know, the best friends in my life. Um, have come from the people that I have done political campaigns with or I've worked on sexual assault with or I have, you know, worked on, you know, um, reproductive rights with or paid leave. You know, those are my girlfriends. Those are my friends. That's how I met a guy. The guy who's sitting in the Oval Office today was by doing that. And so be active, stay active. Little plug for the summit. You can go to unitedstateofwomen.org and, you know, know more about the summit. Uh, you can take a pledge there. Um, there's a pledge generator for yourself online about what you will do to change tomorrow. Our theme is today will change tomorrow. And, you know, we'll live stream it at whitehouse.gov. So please join us on June 14th and, you know, even remotely, you know, and watch what we're doing out here. It really does makes a great difference to all of us to see the people ahead of us and to see everybody breaking barriers and creating paths for us. So thank you so much, Tina. It was a thrill. Thank you. All right. Thank you both. was Tina Chen, Chief of Staff to First Lady Michelle Obama and Executive Director for the White House Council on Women and Girls. She's the organizer of the first ever United State of Women Summit, a conference dedicated to building gender equality around the world, happening this week in Washington. She's a total shero, and I feel deeply lucky that my daughter has women like Tina to look up to. I mean, she's paving the way for her and for all the other little girls that are growing up in this historic moment in America. Thank you, Tina. Uh, we're both such crybabies. We cried in that interview. <laughs> <laughs> we're criers. The Mashup Americans are me, Amy Choi. And me, Rebecca Lair. Our producer today was Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our show is produced by American Public Media and Southern California Public Radio, KPCC. We're also supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts on the web at arts.gov. Ciao. Bye. Bye.